The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell joining us on the phone to discuss COVID. Because yes, we were very much still in this pandemic. Dr. Michael Olsterholm, thank you so much for being here today. Good morning. Thank you so much for being back with us. I feel like... happy to do so. I'm the only person in America that has a media platform that still thinks we're in a pandemic. I, I kid, I kid. Um, but um, that's my first question. We're three years into it, but I feel like everybody's acting as if COVID is over. Do you think it's over? It's definitely not over. And the challenge we have, though, is dealing with a public that thinks it is over. And they are acting as such. And this is not just true in the United States. This is around the world. I think just to put this into perspective, today we're averaging about 450 deaths a day, which is better than it was a month ago when we were in the 500s. But when you compare that to other events that happen in the world in terms of of risk of death, the number one leading cause of deaths every day in this country from cancer is lung cancer, and that's about 350 deaths a day. Um, When you think about the tragedies, and these clearly have been true tragedies of the firearms-related events of the past uh, uh, year, on average, while those large venue events happen rarely, comparatively speaking, 140 people a day die in this country from gunshot wounds. Mm -hmm. And so when you start looking at these things, you have to say, well, sounds like that COVID is still really extracting a price from us. And it is. Uh, The problem is that we just are, in our minds, over the virus. In terms of the surge, I don't know if you would call it a surge, but the variant, yep. subvariant circulating right now, I mean, I've seen the graph. So the surge is not as large as the last two winters, but it's not nothing. And as you said, 500, around 500 people passing away on a daily basis. Talk a bit about the XBB subvariant and what you're seeing in terms of, even in your your home state of Minnesota, in terms of hospitalizations, because I feel like... Yeah. The case numbers, I don't believe anymore. So I look at the other yeah. things. <laughs> well, first of all, you're wise not to believe the case numbers. <laughs> I don't believe that fact, at all. They, I, I happen to know on more people right now around me, colleagues, friends, family who are infected with this virus uh, who have never been reported because while they're ill, they're at home. They've confirmed their illness with at-home testing and not reported the case to anyone. So surely there is a lot more going on out there than we would ever have in case numbers. Where you start getting a better handle on it, of course, is with hospitalizations and deaths. And I think one of the the real challenges we have with this virus is that no one, no one can tell you with any accuracy what it's going to look like six to 10 weeks from now. Hmm. This thing just keeps throwing curveballs at us, 210 mile hour curveballs. For example, um, if, the, if you look at what happened earlier in the year, right around the holiday season, everybody said, oh, the holiday are going to result in all this travel and people getting together. And we're going to see this big surge with this. And by the way, XBB 1.5, the, 
the variant that has by far the most immune evasion, meaning that it, if you already have immunity, can get around it of all the subvariants we've seen to date. So, oh my gosh, this is going to explode. Well, we saw XBB 1.5 take off in the Northeast, to, and, and, and it surely did challenge us a bit, but it was not anywhere like the surge, as you just described, from mm -hmm. previous uh, uh, subvariants or variants. And guess what? It's kind of petered out throughout the rest of the country. Right now here in Minnesota, you know, we're in this lower level of activity that we've been in for some time. Uh, we've seen XBB uh, surely present here, particularly in our wastewater samples, but we've not seen a big case increase. Um, so this is where it's really confusing. Now, just take another country like Japan, where BA5, which is one of the Omicron variant subvariants that emerged, had a major peak of cases in the August-September time period. Remember, for two years, I kept hearing from people saying, if we just did it like Japan, if we just did it like Japan, <laughs> it would be a lot better. Well, they had this big peak with BA5 that came down then in September, October. And lo and behold, what happens? They have another peak even larger in December and early January, and they actually hit some of the highest death rates for any country at any time in the pandemic. And it was BA5 again. What was that about? And so I think that one of the humbling moments, I think, for a lot of us is that we can't tell you what's going to happen. Mm. When I hear people talk about seasonality, you know, for the last 12 weeks, if you look at the Northeast with XBB 1.5 and you look at New South Wales and Australia, the epidemiology was identical in terms of case numbers, people hospitalized, deaths, et cetera, per population. Um, you know, that surely isn't seasonality if right. Australia and, and <laughs> Northeast United States are seeing it the very same way. So I think what we have to do is acknowledge we're just not sure what the next shoe is to drop with this particular virus. That's really, really important. Um, in terms of the booster shots, um, one of the things I've been stressing out about a little, um, two things. One, not very many people have had the Bible and booster shot. So the, the booster shot became available in September, but the last I checked, the percentage of people who have actually taken it is like under 20%. Um, and then also, uh, if you took it in September, which most people who took it in September, like me, probably were very eager to get every booster available. Um, but now we're coming up on like five, six months since then. And we're like, should we, what do we do? Um, so talk a bit about the uptake of the bivalent booster and how be that being such a low percentage is a concern if it, if you feel that way, and then also, is the, are they working on another booster? Like what what what's yeah, going to happen yeah. in the next six months? Well, first of all, let me just say at the outset, you have expressed my exact feelings about <laughs> me, me getting the vaccine in September and me personally wanting to know what the next step is because you're right. As time goes on, that protection wanes. So so you're not alone. Trust me on that. Um, First of all, we have to just realize that getting these bivalent boosters are very, very important, particularly for those over age 50 or those who have immune compromised conditions, et cetera, because again, these are the deaths we're talking about, you know, 500 plus deaths a, uh, a day until very recently. Now we're still in the 400. The evidence is clear and compelling that that booster can reduce the likelihood of, of becoming seriously ill, being hospitalized and dying. It won't necessarily stop you from getting infected. It won't stop you from necessarily having symptoms or even, for that matter, spreading the virus. But right now, we all would take a, a, a major protection against serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. 
So you want to get that. But you raise another point that's a very important one is we now know over time that that immunity wanes. And, you know, when you think about where we were several years ago, when you first started talking about this on your show, we had a early mindset that these vaccines are going to be like measles vaccine, kind of right. two and out. You know, you get it, you're protected for life. Well, we quickly realized that that was not the case. And, and we shouldn't have been surprised because coronaviruses have never been good mm -hmm. at giving us the opportunity to make a lifetime vaccine against it. So then what we came to realize is, wait a minute, as these variants changed and coinciding with our own reduction in, in protection and immunity, we would need additional uh, doses of vaccine. We still don't fully understand how much protection is afforded by the antibody, which comes up and goes down somewhat quickly after getting vaccinated versus another type of immune response called T cells, which are mm -hmm. more permanent. But the point being is, as you just raised, is what is the next step? What, what, what should we have happen? Well, first of all, we're not doing real well at the first step because as you pointed out, the number of people getting the bivalent va vaccine, even if you look at just the older population of you know, 40% over 65 having gotten vaccine, that is insufficient here to knock down these numbers of deaths. We need to get that number up. But then for people like you and me who got the vaccine you know, more than five months ago, what's the next step? Well, the FDA had kind of signaled this at their meeting uh, of a week and a half ago that in fact, what would likely be the case is we'll make this kind of a seasonal vaccine. So when you give flu vaccine, you give the COVID vaccine and you get it once a year. Well, I'm not a big fan of that at all. And the reason for that is there's no evidence that this is a seasonal vac uh, disease yet. Mm. With flu, you and I can pretty well predict, even though it came early this year, it's going to be a winter season in each hemisphere. And so that we can say if you get vaccinated in October, November, you're going to be protected as you get into the highest likelihood of flu season of late December, January, Okay. Well, we can't say that with COVID. We don't right. know what the next season is. So you could maybe get vaccinated in October and not have a big COVID hit until the next April or May. And so I think they, they need very definitely to look at this personally for me. Uh, and I know this is not going to happen. And I know it surely wouldn't happen for many people. I'd just as soon get two doses a year, one every six mm. months. And that, I think that yeah. would help a lot. No, I mean, that's that's what I've been feeling um, in, in recent weeks. I'm like, you know, you're I'm coming up on <laughs> a while yeah. since that last because I ran to get it. I mean, as soon as it was available, I think it was like the first day I was like in there. Um, and now I'm like, uh, do I need another one? Should are they going to make a well, new one that's even if more I, as soon as updated? as soon as I find out how I can get my extra one, I'll contact you. Let me know. I let me know I what I need I to sign up for. <laughs> um, I will. So um, the other question I had is this week is the week we learned that the, the administration is going to end the, quote, national emergency declaration. It's going to happen in May of this year. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I feel like there are some sort yeah. of policy things that happen as a result of that officially um, being ended. But that doesn't mean the pandemic's over. Yeah. Well, let's let's just go back and even think about what happened a couple months ago when President Biden announced that basically the pandemic was over. I had the very uncomfortable position of being two lines down in the New York Times story and saying, no, that's not true. Okay. What he was referring to, which actually is true, is that the vast majority of Americans are done with this pandemic. You see, you know, look at everyday life right now, restaurants, bars, mm -hmm. 
public transportation, you know, big concert venues, et cetera. Not only are people all coming back, but almost no one wears effective respiratory protection. So, you know, they're, they're not getting protected that way. That part is true. What we know, though, as we've just been talking about, is the virus isn't done with us yet, even if we're done with it. And the challenge is, how do we get the most protection? Well, what you're talking about with ending the public health emergency declaration was really more about certain policies which concern us, because there were a number of people who had access to health care that would not now have it if mm. that ended. Um, the issue around how do we make certain that certain financing of, of testing and, and of vaccines occurs. That all also is a big challenge right now. So I understand why such a public health emergency can't go on indefinitely, but I think it is going to create some challenges, particularly with uh, the issue of, uh, of financing uh, the work that we're trying to do right now. The other thing I would just add, something that is very concerning to me, is there have been a whole number of people in this country who have been at high risk for serious illness hospitalizations and deaths, namely because they're immune compromised. And they've been able to obtain a product called Evershield. Evershield is a monoclonal antibody that is injected that has great protection for months after you've gotten it against the virus. Well, we now no longer have Evershield because the mutations of these newest variants basically do that in. That's one of the things we worry about with increased mm. immune evasion. So right now, we do not have a monoclonal antibody for these people who have felt better protected over the course of the last three years, who now are not. And there's no money, basically, to find new sources of Evershield-like products, you know, ones that have basically been adapted or adjusted to these mutations. And so I think that's another concern we have right now. These people will find themselves at increased risk uh, in a way that they haven't for the last several years. Yeah, I mean, it frustrates me when people don't see the connection between our lack of following the mitigation guidelines and new variants. They're like, why is there a new variant? I'm like, because you won't wear a mask. And so the virus is spreading everywhere all the time yeah. and it's mutating. That's why um, we keep seeing these new variants. Um, talk a bit... Uh, about what it what it would mean for the pandemic to actually be over. I even remember before Omicron, people being like, "Oh, we're in an endemic phase, and you know, we're yeah. we're we're on our way out of the pandemic." That was a while back. I haven't heard those people say that recently. But I think that we all sort of want like somebody to yeah. hold up a sign that says the pandemic is over, and this is the moment you won't ever need a mask again. Should we stop yeah. thinking of it that way? Well, let me just tell you that every morning when I wake up. The first thing I do is begin to try to uh, take my crystal ball covered with five inches of mud and, and ship that mud off, okay? Mm -hmm. But I can see what might be happening today. You know, remember back in the day when everybody said, oh, we're going to get enough people vaccinated or infected to have herd immunity mm -hmm. to stop. Well, mm -hmm. where did that go? How'd that work for us, okay? Then we got to the point of saying, well, you know, uh, we're going to have enough uh, protection from just natural infection, Okay and that that will keep us from getting infected. I now know of people literally who have been infected up to four times, each time separate and laboratory confirmed, you know, again, if they're out and about. So we now know that just getting infected itself won't stop it. So I think the question you're asking, which is really an important one is, what does the end game look like? And, you know, if we had done this show one year ago, right now, 
first of all, we would have said, boy, Omicron is just the worst, mm -hmm. a big surge. After this, oh, everybody will be infected. Fine. Well, then we had subvariants develop. And we just went through the last year of what I call the High Plains Plateau, where we didn't go back down, kind mm -hmm. of between the mountain peak of cases and the mountain value cases. It just stayed high. Well, that's a brand new part of the pandemic. We'd not seen that in the first two years. What does that mean now? And we just don't know what this virus is going to do. Do I think we'll have other big surges, real big surges? No, I don't think so. I think there's enough immunity that even if it can evade some of it, it still will keep people from becoming seriously ill, hospitalized and deaths in larger numbers. But I, I, you cannot rule out that we're going to see new subvariants develop that will challenge us and get us back up five, 600 deaths a day, mm -hmm. which to me is just unacceptable. Right. That to me is, is still you know, 3,500 3, to 4,000 people dying a week in this country from COVID, that's a big deal. The other thing I, I think about too, when you talk about um, COVID-related deaths is sort of the long-term effects of COVID. So there's a lot of misinformation out there about the vaccines causing health complications. But the reality is, and everything I've read, and I'm sure that you have read as well, is that the long-term effects of a COVID infection, even a mild one, those we should be talking more about that, right? I mean, I, I focus a lot on about long, I focus a lot on long COVID on this show, but I feel like that's what I'm more afraid of at this moment in the pandemic than, you know, dying of a COVID infection. I'm I'm worried about the long term yeah. implications. I mean, that's and a piece of it too, right? And you're right on the mark with that. Absolutely right on the mark of that. I know far too many people who are suffering from long COVID uh, that literally have a hard time getting out of bed every day. Uh, people who are very active, people who, you know, have been living life at its fullest, who have basically been derailed because of long COVID. And so, uh, yeah, that's a real concern. For me, I feel exactly the same way. And again, that's why we have to keep working to find better vaccines. Our center, by the way, has led an international effort to develop what we call a roadmap for better coronavirus vaccines. It will be released in a few days. Mm -hmm. And this is a comprehensive effort of over 60 international experts to actually come together and say, okay, what do we need to do step by step by step to get new and improved COVID vaccines that may have more durability in terms of protection that, uh, that we can in fact also knock down uh, you know, any new infections, not just serious illness. And so we're working on that, but that's not going to come soon. So in the meantime, avoidance of getting infected is the best we can do. You know, I, when I go in public places, I'm wearing my N95 respirator and fortunately knock on wood, I've not yet gotten infected. We'll see, you know, what happens over time. Oh, I'm the same way. I'm a little like, I have, I, I don't even know if it works, but I have like an, a little air purifier that I also bring everywhere with me. Um, yeah. And, and it, that's actually my last question. It, you know, I think yeah. that we've, we've normalized not wearing masks. How can we get back to a place where people understand that masks are just simply good because there are a lot of germs out here generally. Yeah. Like I, I don't really want anybody breathing in my face any, anymore ever. <laughs> well, sw swapping air uh, with someone you love can be a wonderful thing. Swapping air with somebody you don't know sitting next to in a crowded mm -hmm. building is not a good thing necessarily. No, okay? don't love it. So, so, <laughs> so I agree with you 100%. One of the things we need, did a very poor job of educating people what kind of mask or facial protection did you need to reduce your risk, and then why wearing them uh, still can be very, very helpful. Now, for many people, particularly those under age 50, otherwise healthy, 
I will acknowledge the risk of getting seriously ill and dying from this infection is low, but we also don't yet fully understand the impact of long COVID in this population, right. which they don't want to get that. So we still have some real challenges to go here yet. And frankly, it's shows like yours where you do such a wonderful job of laying out the issues and hopefully we have a better informed public that then can take this information and act on it. So I, I thank you for doing that. Thank you. I credit my dad. He's a biology professor. So that I feel like I live with someone who just he's like it's just science you got to stick to the science of it all um you know it that's uh, as a political analyst it was funny in the beginning of the pandemic i was like oh i don't have anything to add to the con i just should be quiet i should be quiet and listen to the scientists that's that's the rule that i followed throughout the course of the pandemic i think others should probably yeah. try um well we only have three more minutes and my last yeah. question actually is about future pandemics. I know that we're not even done with this one, but one of the other things I've been reading about is the fact that, you know, because of things like climate change, you know, this isn't going to be the first virus that and pandemic that we are going to have to deal with perhaps in our own lifetimes. Can you talk a bit about how problematic yeah. that is, given the fact that we've made so many mistakes during the COVID pandemic? Well, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because I'm actually writing another book. You know, in, in 2017, I wrote a book, Deadliest Enemies, Our War Against Killer Germs, that was about predicting what happened. In fact, mm -hmm. if you look at the scenarios I laid out for yeah. what a pandemic would look like, it's there. Well, I'm writing another one right now that says, what are the lessons we should have and could have learned from this one for future ones? And let me just remind people, you know, in many ways, this is not the big one. The big one is one like 1918 flu that killed 100 million people, okay, not 67 million people at a time when the world's population was just much smaller than it is today. The second thing is, is that when you look at a coronavirus, if you look at SARS or MERS, those earlier ones we had in 2003 and 2012, those were viruses that were not very transmissible. It was harder to get it to go from person to person, but it killed 15 to 35% of the people that it infected. This virus today is very infectious, but fortunately, and I say this with great pain, less than 1% of the people who get infected die more so in the older population. But there is nothing to keep the next coronavirus from having the attributes of 15 to 35% mortality and the transmission potential of what we see with SARS-CoV-2. Think what that would look like. So we do have real lessons we have to learn and be better prepared. And while, you know, aliens and uh, countries in the world may be our enemies, whatever, in the end, it's all about the, the bugs. You know, they were here before right. we were here. They're here yeah. now. and They're going to be here after we leave. Oh, yeah. No, this is the Game of Thrones scenario. You know, everybody's fighting yeah. and then the White Walkers are coming. Like, we, you know, we, we, we have to pay attention uh, to what's going on. That's why yeah. I, I read and I'm looking forward to that book, because um, as you mentioned, you were the one of the people out here telling us what was going to happen. Then it did happen. And now we're like, oh, we're done with it. And we're not trying to learn the lessons. And that's why we talk to folks like Dr. Michael Olsterholm, who can help help us <laughs> uh, learn some of these lessons. Uh, Regents Professor, University of Minnesota, many other titles, and obviously author of those two books. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Morning. It was so great to chat. Always good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.